I'm John Henshaw with the Coil Podcast, and I have the pleasure of speaking with Stephen Deal, and he is a software engineer in London, England, and I discovered him, I guess, maybe on Twitter, because he had written a blog post that really got my attention, and, and the title of it was, Web3 is Bullshit, <laughs> and, and I, I um, of course, immediately read it, because... Uh, People may not know this, but I'm not so sure Web3 is the future of the internet, and I'm not so sure that uh, the internet is broken. Uh, so I ended up going down the rabbit hole of the things that Stephen has written and was just kind of blown away and really impressed uh, by his knowledge, uh, specifically historic knowledge, and also his, I guess either education or just well-read in economics um, because he makes incredibly compelling cases <laughs> for, for why this is truly a bunch of hype. Well, regardless, welcome, Stephen. Thanks for joining me. Hi, John. Lovely to be here today. Yeah. Uh, you, uh, you actually sound great. I'm in the U.S. and, and you're in England and, and um, somehow the internet is working today because we can hear each other uh, without too much latency. So maybe the, maybe the internet isn't broken. I don't know. Maybe this web two thing, web 2.0 thing actually kind of works, you know? Right. I mean, do you think that maybe in order for us to record this, it should have been done on blockchain or, I mean, <laughs> or do you think we're okay with whatever protocol is being used here? Yeah. We need like a John token where we can, you know, speculate on the price of your podcast. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, well, and for sure, you know, once this is done and I can just publish, we it's totally going to become an NFT because uh, <laughs> like, I'll, I'll own it, but they'll, I guess, own the audio, but without rights, it's it's very confusing. Well, uh, you know, before we get into it, I love <laughs> the I love the way you title your blog posts, and some of them are kind of just. You know, it's make me laugh when I see them. And, you know, I'd mentioned earlier that, that the post that, that sort of like made me discover who you were was, was web, web three is bullshit, which is a actually brilliantly written post. Uh, but then the, there's the next one I read after that, which was the, the case against crypto, another brilliant, brilliantly written um, post, but some of your other titles are just, I love them. Um, and I'm going to read some of them for the people listening. Uh, and cause I think they'll love them too. The, the internet's casino boats, <laughs> the, the hand wavy techno babble, nothing burger. That's, that's a good one. Uh, the Tinkerbell griftotopia decentralized woohoo or yeah. Wo yeah. Woohoo. The intellectual incoherence of crypto assets. I mean, that's just, that's just prose right there. Um, the non-innovation of cryptocurrency, uh, Bitcoin, these aren't as funny as much as they are just maybe matter of fact, Bitcoin, the postmodern Ponzi, uh, and the crypto Chernobyl. So, so I guess it would be an accurate statement to say that, that you maybe aren't a crypto bro. Yeah, I probably put myself more in the crypto skeptic camp. I don't know if you kind of read that from my, my posts. Uh, they're a bit subtle, but uh... I get the feeling. I get the feeling <laughs> that that might that might be true. Well, um, you know, my intention today is just to sort of uh, you know talk about tech, talk about web tech, and and of course I want to talk about the web three stuff first because um, you seem to have a 
a lot of opinions and, and things to say about that. Um, and, uh, and you're one of the few people who have actually been talking about it for a while. Um, I, th- I think that I haven't really seen or read very much, um, I guess, open critiques of it online. I think there's sort of like a, a fear of it, uh, a fear of pissing off people who are in that space. It's, it's almost uh, like a religion or a cult. And, and so my first question to you is, let's say that we meet on the street and I'm wearing my t-shirt with my .eth domain on it because I'm hardcore. I'm holding a sign that says, if you don't accept Web3 into your heart, as your Lord and Savior, you will you will die poor and alone and, and live in tech hell forever. What would you say to me to think otherwise? Hmm. I mean, you're definitely right. There's kind of like kind of almost religious fervor to some of these technologies, which is a very strange thing. It's not often that we have technologies that seem to be wrapped in so much sort of political and sort of like quasi-religious discourse as crypto. Um, but if I saw somebody on the street, you know, I feel like I can kind of reason with most people, and I think. Um, the arguments that we can make about, you know, just ask the simple question, like, what is this crypto thing doing in the world? Um, and, you know, <laughs> a kind of Socratic dialogue from that question generally leads you to answer some fundamental questions about the technology and like, what is it being used for in the world? I mean, it's being used for gambling. That's certainly a use case, but uh, it's one that has a very kind of limited societal value. And I think a lot of the kind of narrative that's being pushed around these technologies has been kind of intellectually deconstructed by a lot of people, like including like some of the Nobel Prize winners and like a lot of policy officials and technologists. And so, you know, fundamentally, the the question about crypto is like, what is the purpose of these things? Um, And that's a really hard question, I think, for a lot of those people to answer uh, without kind of devolving to kind of like a sort of the quasi-religious faith. I would come back and say, you know, it's the future of the net, bro. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I would come back and, and, and essentially be like, um, look, everything is corrupt. <laughs> Nothing works. The only way for the internet to, to work is, is to have nobody be in control of it. And, uh, you know, fiat is bad and, and these tokens, you know, cryptocurrency is is really the only currency we should be using. Uh, also, I got in early. <laughs> so <laughs> I need for this to work because I'm making a crap ton of money. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely that kind of like economic directed reasoning. Like it's hard to convince a man of something when his future returns depend on him believing in it, right? In fact, depend on him re- recruiting more people into the scheme forever, basically kind of to have exit liquidity for your position. And, you know, I, I disagree with the fundamental conception that the internet is fundamentally broken. I think the internet works very, very, very well. And like the cost of building and deploying new web applications these days has never been lower. Um, and, you know, there's some problems with the internet, certainly some of the centralization we have with some of the large tech players in the United States. But like, by and large, you know, the internet is working quite well. Um, and then the notion that these things are like, some sort of like the future of money or something seems a bit um, incoherent as a, as an argument because they're not actually acting as money. Um, 
they're acting kind of as speculative gambling products. Like when was the last time you bought like, you know, the yen or like the sterling uh, to like get rich off of it? Like, you know, just ask the fundamental question, like how often do you invest in currencies to get wealthy? And if you ask that question, then you end up with some sort of mm, hard questions to ask. Well, that's, that's interesting uh, because I, you know, one of the things that I've um, read uh, at least one of your posts is that it's, it's uh it's not even a it's like you said it's not actually currency it's a sort of a speculative security or something like that or or asset and um and that historically that's gone poorly in other words cryptocurrency while having a new name and and being possible through a new type of technology at its core, we've been here before in history. And there's a reason why we have um, the type of sort of fiat that we have now. Can you kind of expound on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. Um, the important thing to think is that like, despite the namesake, cryptocurrencies almost have nothing to do with currencies. Uh, they're a lot closer to like stocks, what are called like securities. And um, if you look back at like, kind of the early 1930s, like post the market crash for the Great Depression, um, we had a lot of these things that kind of looked like, you know, the 1930s versions of uh, cryptocurrencies um, and they were called blue sky securities. So basically the thing was you would create a shell company um, and then you allocate a certain number of shares in the cell share in the shell company, and then you can sell those and float them on the market, right? Except it's you know you're selling shares uh, in an empty shell company that doesn't actually do anything. Now people can go off and buy those things, and the price can fluctuate up and down, but fundamentally there's no reason why that share should have any value because normally uh, the price of like any kind of equity is you know valued in terms of the future cash flows of the underlying enterprise, and so cryptocurrencies basically look like that. They're basically like, you know, stock in a shell company that doesn't actually do anything. And unfortunately, it turns out that when you create these things, sometimes they can cause speculative bubbles to occur in markets where people just buy them well, completely detached from <laughs> any kind of expectation about the, you know, the product itself and just trying to offload it on a greater fool. And that always ends badly and it always ends the same way. Let's talk about how the there's this common message that i read all the time which is that the internet is broken and web 2 whatever that might be <laughs> is is broken and i think it's it's really ironic to me that in order to actually do the things um that surround it like for example get a dot EHT domain or to be able to view and, and buy and manage um, cryptocurrency, that type of thing. Everything's on web two from my perspective. So for example, I'm, I'm thinking of the crypto.com, you know, type, type thing where it's uh, coinbase.com. Um, all of those things require web two but how is it that I'm able to actually access crypto.com and and uh, or do those things on Coinbase if if everything's broken? <laughs> Explain that to me. 
Well, I mean, I disagree with the notion that the web is broken. I think it's a bit of a reductive statement. I mean, I think there are certainly problems with like Facebook and Twitter having too much power. I think people like to kind of overgeneralize that statement, say, oh, the whole web is broken. And I'm like, no, well, you know, GitHub still works. Wikipedia still works. You know, Airbnb still works. So, you know, there's hundreds of these tech companies that get spun up every year and they're all more or less working. So, you know, I find it a bit reductive, the kind of notion that the web needs to be rebuilt from scratch and like like a phoenix, something new will arise out of this, you know, out of the crypto scams, because I don't really see much there. But you're, to ask your question about like why crypto.com works, like why these exchanges work, well, because they run on databases, right? When you go onto one of these crypto exchanges, what you're doing is kind of acting, well, you're interacting with a broker uh, that's selling you kind of a derivative of a crypto position um, that they run out of a you know normal web 2.0 application. Um, and then on the back end of that, they sometimes settle these things on one of these distributed ledger technologies, um, like, the, like the Bitcoin network or the Ethereum network. Um, but these things are very much building on traditional technologies. They happen to just, you know, use a very, very small slice of the blockchain to do kind of gross settlement between some of these projects. Um, but, you know, the crypto exchanges are basically just like ooh, sort of offshore gambling platforms, if you will. Um, they're not actually kind of anything new or interesting, to be honest. So that's the thing um, is it, this is the thing that really kind of if I think about it, it gets me worked up, <laughs> which, which is at the end of the day, most of the what's going on in this space is reliant mostly reliant on what is considered to be web two and it's centralized <laughs> and i mean that's that's to me is like the biggest joke is when i i read and see all this stuff and all this like idealistic ideas around what web three is and what it can be and you can do it right now is that it feels like more of the same it just that's what it feels like it's it's just sort of like you're it's and kind of like what you were just saying, which is it's just centralized companies that are allowing people a different way to gamble. <laughs> and, and it's not something completely new um, and fixing all the things um, that's, that's sort of, that's sort of how I see it. And, and it, and it confuses me to no end that it could be anything other than that. I mean, it confuses a lot of people because the narrative that these technologies are wrapped in is this sort of techno-utopianism dream about, oh, we're going to decentralize all these old legacy players and we're going to you know, create a whole new financial system that's going to be based around decentralization. And then you look how people are actually using these things and they're like, they're going to like a centralized broker, which is going to custody all their funds. Because you know what? It kind of sucks to custody your own crypto. Like my grandmother doesn't have the kind of, you know, infosec, uh, you know, skills to basically act like her own bank, right? So you have these kind of unregulated brokers that are basically acting like sort of quasi-bank-like structures that basically custody other people's money. And like, well, congratulations, you've just recreated a bank, uh, except without regulation, without like deposit insurance and with no consumer protection. So on top of something that doesn't actually function as money. So, you know, <laughs> there's a fundamental like contradiction baked into most cryptos that by the only way they could possibly succeed is by becoming the very centralized systems they were designed to replace. And that's the fundamental contradiction at the heart of crypto. Which to me is sadly funny, I guess. Well, let's, let's, <laughs> let's, let's shift more towards, um, let's shift away from this a little bit and, and talk about something 
that I think is important and, and does matter. And I think is consistent with, with what you were sort of alluding to earlier about what might be broken with the internet, which is, um, you know, the Facebooks of the world, you know, type of thing. And, and so let's, let's talk about actual true decentralization uh, for a little bit. Um, I, I think it's important to point out for the people listening that we have decentralization now. Um, it's, it's, and it, and it's really an issue around protocols. And so, for example, um, the fact that, that I can send an email and you can receive that email, that's, that is decentralization that everybody can, could run their own email server. Um, and we can have our own domains and we can send and receive those, um, those electronic messages. And so, and so we've had it, we've had it for since I guess the beginning of, of what we, you know, the internet we've been using. Um, but we don't really have that elsewhere, at least with the things that we like to use every day. And, and so um, I'll get into social um, in a second, but I wanted to talk about one of the web three technologies first. And the, and one of the technologies that I'm a fan of that I actually use, I'm pushing for, I really like, even if, even if I don't get the rest of it, tokens, blockchain, et cetera, NFTs, <laughs> um, I really like this particular technology, which is IPFS. Um, IPFS is decentralized distributed um, storage. And it means it, it allows me to, as just some Yahoo <laughs> in my home, I can take an old computer, I can install the IPFS client on there and I can add a file and I'm now I've, I can add a, even like a static website and anybody uh, either via gateway or, or using some sort of um, client that can access uh, IPFS CIDs, content IDs can access that in the world. I mean, it's, it's, it is truly decentralized file storage and delivery where I don't have to go to a hosting company. I don't have to use, Amazon S3, um, I can just kind of do it out, outside my home and everybody can access it over that peer-to-peer -peer network. I mean, uh, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, do you, I mean, is that a good piece of Web3? Is that something that makes sense um, towards sort of a, a, a truly decentralized world on the web? Yeah, I think this may actually surprise some people, but like uh, my only criticisms about Web3 is basically the affiliation with cryptocurrencies. So like a lot of these distributed technologies, I'm actually quite bullish on. So things like IPFS, um, you know, just a pure technology, they're kind of like a next evolution of like the BitTorrent protocol to basically have a way of doing persistent storage of content. So I have no problem with those kind of things because there's no investment scheme attached to them. You know, there's the pure technology for, you know, you know, doing persistent hashing of files and storing them in a persistent way across the internet. Uh, and I think there probably is something quite useful there. I mean, BitTorrent was originally a decentralized protocol. There's things like Mastodon and Beaker Browser and IPFS. And if there is interesting kind of software to be written, it's written around things that don't have a, a token attached to them. Um, and IPFS is one of those things. It's quite interesting from a computer science perspective. At this point in the conversation, as fate would have it, we had connection problems. And so 
that entire answer you just heard about IPFS, I didn't hear any of it. I was actually asking him if he was still there. <laughs> and so um, we had to switch over to Zoom, which does not have the best quality um, in recording, uh, but we were able to keep the conversation going. Um, but if it sounds different, now you know why. So a lot of a lot of uh, Web three stuff is around this concept, you know, of decentralization. And as I said before, we already kind of have that with email, but we don't have that when it comes to social media. Everything is absolutely centralized, and you even sort of alluded to that earlier about what, in regards to what might be broken on the internet, which is that a handful of giant companies pretty much control all of our social communication. And so there has been some movement around this, but it's just been very slow and there just doesn't seem to be a lot of adoption yet. Um, for example, there is something called the Fediverse and it's made up of different sort of uh, services like Mastodon that can talk to each other. And, and it enables myself to to run sort of an, a, an instance um, of my social presence and I can follow and connect and communicate with yours if you are using a supportive protocol like ActivityPub. Why do you think there hasn't been much growth in this area? What do you think is, is stopping it from getting to a place where uh, people would actually want to leave Twitter or or leave Facebook to be able to be in control of their own social media presence? Certainly, I don't think anybody looks at the kind of current state of the you know web ecosystem today, looks at things like Facebook or Twitter and thinks that, oh, this seems like a very sensible business model. No, I mean, like basically their business model is to turn all of their users into little sources of data that they can mine um, and that they basically max, show them maximally divisive content to maximize their screen time, to show them advertisements. And, uh, you know, it's inherently kind of predatory business model. Um, and you're right, there's kind of these like fledgling protocols which have been developing for a while to kind of replace, uh, allegedly replace some of these uh, legacy platforms, things like Mastodon and Activity Pub. Um, it's just very, very hard to bootstrap a social network uh, just because of the kind of, you know, economies of scale and the network effects of these things. Um, you know, Facebook is accessible because your average, you know, senior citizen can use it to look at pictures of their grandparents or their grandchildren. Um, and, you know, it just takes a lot of engineering effort to make a very well-polished and easy to use product. And if you look at some of these projects, unfortunately they're run like by, you know, five or six open source contributors trying to like take on these behemoths. And, you know, a corollary to this as well is that like even if there were a you know fledgling social media startup that was had uh, you know less malign influence on the world or a better business model um the default behavior for most of these companies is basically just to acquire them immediately um and so just the business environment doesn't allow uh competitors to exist anymore 
And that's probably why we're kind of seeing all these antitrust suits being brought against some of the social media platforms, because I don't think anybody looks at the current tech ecosystem right now and thinks, oh, what we need is more power granted these large monolithic companies anymore. What we need is some more competition and some more startups that can kind of address the fundamental you know, flawed business models of their predecessors. And I really hope that some of these centralized technologies could do that. I'm just a bit wary about some of these kind of alleged Web3 attempts to do this because they seem to be, I mean, the notion of Web3 is that you basically, uh, you know, create some sort of, <laughs> you take an existing Silicon Valley company and turn it into kind of like a multi-level marketing scheme in which you attract users by incentivizing them with like, um, like a piece of equity in the company, but it's a token acting as equity. Um, and then those people are incentivized to bring more users on and so on and so on to get kind of a return on their token investment in the platform. And so this all looks very kind of pyramid-like. Um, and I'm not sure that the Web3 notion of trying to turn sort of the next generation of YouTube or next generation of Twitter into a pyramid scheme is really the right answer to this. It's, it's interesting because I've watched this space for several years. I've uh, I'm, I'm sure you're aware of diaspora um, and, you know, they tried to come up with a solution. There was something called tent IO that seemed really promising at the time. Um, there's something called solid, um, which is uh, Tim learners, Lee uh, backed. Um, and then somewhat more recently there, I think it was Jack who's no longer technically at Twitter um, or at least not running it had announced blue sky which was an initiative to decentralize social um and i was pretty excited about that and until it seemed to devolve all the way back into blockchain again <laughs> i mean because I, <laughs> I i almost got uh, i almost got involved with it i was given access to um the sort of the private group chat, which they were running on matrix at the time, I think they moved to discord and I never interacted because once I got on there, every single person, it seemed um, was saying it's, it's has to be a blockchain token based, whatever solution. Uh, I'm probably embellishing a little bit. It's probably not that severe, but that's where most people were coming from who were on the committee to decide what blue sky might be so that you could truly, talk to people on Twitter and Twitter could talk to people on whatever it might end up being. Um, but that, that was really disappointing to me. And I feel like, I feel like we're back almost at the beginning, which, which is um, there just doesn't seem to be any one thing that, that is going to be compelling enough Um for people to adopt on top of it being easy enough for, like you said earlier, you know, our grandparents to use. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very, very hard to challenge some of these, you know, behemoths because they've just become so powerful. And I think that's kind of a strong argument for like why we just need like antitrust suits to basically break some of them up. They're kind of becoming like the, like back in the 1950s, we had these like standard oil and uh, you know, standard electric where this, you know, the railroad monopolies and like, it's just in the interest of a dynamic market to basically break up behemoths like this because it creates a more dynamic economy and a more dynamic ecosystem where there's actually competition and like actually things can actually thrive without being kind of swaddled in the grave by, or in the cradle by uh, some of these, these larger players. Um, 
But I mean, fundamentally, a lot of these Web3 projects tend to be, they have their own kind of pathological structures baked in because they want to uh, effectively, their, their answer to how to fix this problem is, oh, let's turn all of our users into shareholders by giving them this token, which will kind of incentivize them to engage with the platform. And allegedly that would be better than you know showing them advertisements. Uh, except that like there's a fundamental contradiction in this model uh, because the interests of shareholders and the interests of users are diametrically opposed. Your user wants a very high quality, low cost product uh, that you know fulfills some need in their life, right? And your shareholders interested in having you know a very minimal product, which basically just generates a return on their holdings. Um, so the notion that like turning every single social media user into a shareholder in the network they are. Uh, involved in, unfortunately, has this kind of logical contradiction baked in the heart of it. And that's probably the fundamental sort of uh, incoherency at the, the heart of the Web3 narrative. That's interesting. It's also frustrating to me, you know, as somebody who um, participates uh, in, <laughs> in that type of communication. The uh, kind of next to last thing I wanted to ask you about were your thoughts on the metaverse. And do you think it will become ubiquitous in society. Will it, will it change the nature of how the next generation relates and communicates similar to smartphones have for my kids? <laughs> um, or do you think real life will win out? I mean, God, if I know what the metaverse actually even is, I think it's kind of a buzzword. Like I, I read like, Mil I think Stephens it's goggles. Was... My, my definition is going to be goggles. <laughs> my definition like, oh, no. is, is you living in a, in a virtual reality. That's let's go with that definition. Like VR goggles are a real thing. Like I can't deny that. And I think they're going to have some very niche applications, probably in the gaming space, probably for teleconferencing, maybe in like computer aided design. And, you know, those are going to be, you know, small niche industries that, you know, are going to transform some aspects of our lives. But like the notion that I'm going to basically strap in an Oculus to my head for 24 hours a day and just participate in Zoom calls with my remote colleagues sounds like a living nightmare to me, to be frank. Indeed. Um, and I think <laughs> the Zuckerberg vision of the metaverse is a bit hyperbolic. I think, uh, I think he's selling a lot of hype around technology that exists, but I don't think it's as revolutionary as he thinks it is. I think the thing that, not that I literally, you know, lose sleep, but the thing that I lose sleep on when I think about this is my concern is th that we'll see some sort of cultural shift in sort of the next generations, um, the same way that I've seen in my own kids. Um, and, and so an example of that is most... You know, they spend most of their time on their smartphones. It just is what it is. Um, they're either watching YouTube or on Instagram or whatever it might be. And the and one of the biggest social changes that I've seen from my generation, I I assume am a bit older than you. I'm 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 a Gen Xer, um, and I, uh, you know, we used to date. <laughs> we used to go out <laughs> and and do things. <laughs> <laughs> when before the internet existed and I was a kid and I, I talked to my kids and they are basically like, yeah, nobody dates because if anything goes wrong or even right, everybody in the school knows about it immediately. And, and they're petrified. Like it's, 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 and, and so there is this whole generation that I'm looking at with my own kids 
where they are not experiencing the same stuff that my partner and I did <laughs> um, when we, when we were growing up. Um, and, and while that might uh, be nice as a parent, because you know, your kids aren't totally, totally getting in too much trouble. Um, it is concerning from a socialization standpoint, like, what does that mean that most of your socialization is done um, electronically, you know, and digitally? And, and there are entirely new threats that they have to be concerned about on that so much so that it keeps them from living some percentage of their life, at least, at least what I would consider to be normal, even though it, what I consider to be normal is not normal anymore. I think you made a very poignant observation. I don't know anybody that isn't struggling with this question at the moment, especially parents. It seems like every single parent I know is involved in this kind of endless battle about, you know, too much screen time or the kids want to maximize their screen time. And like, if you give the capacity for the kids to now like literally strap screens to their eyeballs with this Oculus thing, and you know, it's going to have, you know, effects on, you know, just their cognitive development. And you're right that our kids are probably going to grow up in a very, very different kind of social context than the one that we went lived in. Um, you know, like we got to go out to the pub, you know, and we used to go out and meet people and in person. And uh, I, I feel like what we see in like kind of the Japanese culture may actually be kind of, coming over to some more Western countries where this kind of is like generation of people that just have very, very deficient social skills and become kind of shut-ins. They're kind of called that like hikimori over there. And, you know, I really, really hope that my kids don't become sort of, you know, incapable of, you know, you know interacting with people outside of like a virtual environment because it just seems a very sad world to live in. It does. It, it really concerns me. It doesn't concern me as much with my kids because they're older, meaning like, you know, they're almost out of high school, but it does concern me with the, with the sort of younger next generation, because to me, unless I'm completely misunderstanding and miscalculating what it is that meta is trying to do, um, it's, it's trying to sell a virtual world where you can be anything you want to be. You know, the, if you don't like yourself, you know, as a kid, you don't like yourself in, in your particular, you know, society, whatever, which is probably gonna be most people, <laughs> um, especially when you're trying to figure out who you are and what this all means. You can be whatever you want to be in this virtual world. You can look and appear what you think might be the perfect being in that world. You can purchase and own land you can you know essentially all of your interactions can, and communications can happen in that and I, I think that's a zuckerberg wet dream um but it's uh not good for humanity and and so that's sort of the concern i have is is if that ever becomes something um it, it will be the continued dumbing down of our of our society and, and and a sad state of affairs for uh what it means for us as as human beings to create and participate and love and you know be with people as human beings as opposed to um this secondary virtual whatever but as i say all this stuff just like with the web three stuff it makes me feel like a, a ludite or luddite or whatever you know I mean? it makes me feel it makes me feel old i feel like if anybody listens to this, who is uh, sort of on the other side, you know, which is like embrace all technology, become cyborgs and, you know, and all these things. Um, I, I might sound like a, a hundred year old person <laughs> to them. I mean, 
uh, maybe I am. I mean, you know, I don't know, but it, I'm concerned. I'm concerned about about what that future might look like. Um, let's let's end let's end on a a more positive note, if we can. Um, and and that's going to be with me asking you, what is a new or or sort of updated web technology that you think has a lot of promise and you're excited about? So when you think about something that you're aware of that people are working on that is going to make using the web better, what is that? Hmm. So I don't actually work in like web development in my career. Actually, I kind of work more on like numerical computing um, and I work in financial services a bit. Um, so I'm not up to speed on like all of the latest web developments, but I'll say that some of the things that are happening over in sort of what's called like the no code space are terribly interesting. Um, basically rapid prototyping tools for web applications are becoming quite sophisticated these days. And I think the, you know, the phenomenon of driving the cost of development down lower and allowing faster prototyping and faster iteration um, and putting those tools in the hands of people who don't necessarily have the skills to do such things is going to be a very, very interesting um, force multiplier for our entire economy. Um, because I don't know if people know this, but I think a lot of the world runs on a lot of legacy software, like things that were written back in like, you know, the eighties, nineties, like old COBOL systems. Yeah. I, I worked at, I used to work at Visa and, um, I, I don't know what they're on what they're <laughs> now, but, but yeah, at, the, at the time, yeah, at the time it was COBOL <laughs> it's like, and, I was, and I was building a front end, you know, with whatever was the modern stack at the time, um, for that. And, but it had to map to all this COBOL stuff. And it was just like, wow, like that's actually what's running everything. So, so yeah. The world runs on duct tape and uh, chewing gum, basically <laughs> the software <laughs> equivalents of that. And when a lot of those legacy systems get replaced uh, and the cost of software development gets driven down, you know, then entire sectors become more efficient versions of themselves and everybody wins uh, because software really does run the world these days. And the more replacing of legacy software, especially inside the enterprise that we can do, the better off the entire field is going to be. That's great. I think that's really interesting. And that's, that's a, a nice note to, to end on. Uh, Stephen, thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. Optimistic. We need some, we need a little bit. In our Despite life. the web three stuff, there's still a lot of good stuff in software. Right. Right. Yep. Hey, thank you for, for taking the time to talk to me about these things. These are all really interesting. I, um, I really encourage everyone to go read uh, Stephen's posts. I will, you know, link to these, uh, where the podcast is is published and um, but it's it's Stephen Dill is it dot org or dot com dot com dot com S M D L on Twitter. Yep, and, and I'll spell it for the people listening: S T E P H E N D I E H L dot com. Um, and he has uh, some really good content. That regardless of where you fall on Web three, I think it's good to read and consider uh, so that you. Um, have all the information that I think you should have because there are, thing, there are things that you have written, particularly from a historical and economic um, standpoint that I don't think are being discussed um, regularly, just sort of in media. And I think it will make everybody smarter who reads it. So thanks so much. 